1: This is the John Fugelsang podcast. Uh, Let's get to it. Um, You know, I I, if you don't know, um, I I like to start these things with humor and goofiness, you know, or at least something optimistic. And we've got a really good episode here. Uh, We're going to be talking later on in the show with Jane S. Hoffman, uh, former commissioner of consumer affairs for New York City about her powerful uh, and somewhat scary book your data their billions unraveling and simplifying big tech it's all about how uh, the big five tech companies know more about you than your closest friends and loved ones do your closest friends and loved ones don't know as much about your buying habits or your porn habits or your youtube habits as these faceless algorithms do really happy to have her. I promise it'll be fun. We're also a few days into this unholy experiment of, of doing our podcast six days a week. And, I, I, you know, I want to begin this by, by doing a big monologue about uh, how the economy is actually doing pretty well by the conventional standards we've all agreed on. I mean, Biden, this administration in a little over a year, has overseen the creation of four times as many jobs as Donald Trump and George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush combined. Uh, how those three Republican presidents all blew up the deficit in their own special way, Reagan as well, but Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden have been three Democrats in a row who have lowered the deficit. Bill Clinton, for all his problems, actually had a surplus. Um, the last Republican president to have a surplus would be Eisenhower, only 70 years ago. I, I want to talk about how, uh, of the 44 million jobs created in this country, since 1989, 96% of those jobs have come under Democratic presidencies, y- you know, and then make fun of Republicans. Um, but I, it's hard because we're looking right now at this footage that is coming out of Ukraine, and it seemed like it was going to be a good day to talk about how the Ukrainian forces have retaken all areas around the capital of Kiev. They've reclaimed complete control of the region for the first time since Russia began this occupation and invasion on February 24th, wanted to talk about how Russia was retreating from Kyiv. And then came the evidence that we all saw over the weekend on our TVs, on our computer screens, photos showing unarmed Ukrainians who were not a threat to Vladimir Putin in any way. Men, women, children who never threatened Russia who are dead with their bodies strewn around the streets, their hands bound behind their backs, shot dead. That's Bukha, which we'll be hearing a lot about. It's 20 miles outside the capital. The mayor has said that 300 residents had been killed during the last month as the Russian army occupied the town. Reuters reporters saw victims in mass graves. And we've all seen footage of victims still lying dead in the streets. AP reports, and I quote, Bodies with bound hands, close-range gunshot wounds, and signs of torture lay scattered in a city on the outskirts of Kiev after Russian soldiers withdrew from the area. Ukrainian authorities accused the departing forces on Sunday of committing war crimes and leaving behind a scene from a horror movie. Children held at knife point. This is from the New York Times, an article called This is True Barbarity. Children held at knife point. An old woman forced to drink alcohol as her occupiers watched and laughed. Whispers of rape and forced disappearances, an old man found toothless beaten in a ditch and defecated on. Ukrainian troops have had to use cables to pull the bodies of these murdered civilians off the streets because they're so terrified Russian forces may have left the corpses booby trapped. And yet we're having this debate in this country about whether Joe Biden's saying the right thing. Uh, Mark Hansian, Senior Military Advisor for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, was talking about Biden's war crime comment earlier today and said, I think it's premature because we know so little about the facts on the ground. War crimes need to be investigated thoroughly before a judgment is rendered. We're still debating about Joe Biden shooting off his mouth and getting way ahead of official U.S. policy. First, when he said Putin couldn't stay in power even though he said he wasn't calling for regime change, even though it certainly sounded like he was, and he was right. Uh, But again, I keep reading the U.S. press wagging their finger at Joe Biden, saying he's making things worse for Russia by calling a spade a spade. In the meantime, what can we do? Whether we call it war crimes or not doesn't change what's going on. The dead of Ukraine don't care if we think it's a war crime or not. And if we ever determine that Putin was a war criminal, well, who really cares? Who really cares what the language is? It's still going to go on, and we will still be devastated by these images we see. And by we, I mean the Americans who care, not the right-wing fascists over here who defend the right-wing fascist, that is, Vladimir Putin. Remember J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, now running for the Senate? Here's JD. He doesn't care about Ukraine,
2: country. And I think it's ridiculous that we're focused on this border in Ukraine. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you. I don't really care what happens to Ukraine, one way or another.
1: I believe you. You are not lying, JD Vance. How about Donald Trump? Let's not forget Donald Trump, who couldn't stop praising Vladimir Putin when this murderous invasion first began.
2: This is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. I said, how smart is that? Here's a guy who's very savvy.
1: That's right. And let's not forget that trust fund, limpless little baby fascist Tucker Carlson. Remember this little gem he said on his show when this whole invasion began? Why you shouldn't be mad at Putin? It'd be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so
2: much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of
1: them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. Okay, I know you're saying, hey, wait a second. He who tucks only said that back in the very beginning of the invasion. It's been a month. I mean, liar, Tuck has come a long way since then. No, he hasn't. Just last night on his show, he said, what if these bodies of tortured dead civilians were staged? What if they're fake? What if the Ukrainian military killed them and then blamed Russia? I'm not saying any of this is true. I'm just asking the questions. Why can't we ask these questions? That's Tucker's line. I'm just asking questions but he'll never book a guest on his show that will answer the questions. Tucker Carlson does the bidding of fascists because Tucker Carlson has tried his entire life to be popular, he tried being a journalist, he tried dancing with the stars, he finally realized, oh, just embracing racism and fascism for a really undemanding, low-frequency Fox audience. Coming out every night and telling your uncle racist and your aunt dead inside what they wanna hear, yeah. Finally, he found the formula that worked. Meanwhile, we're all discussing whether Joe Biden has gotten ahead of himself by actually calling war crimes, war crimes. Once again, friends, we have gone from a president never getting in trouble for lying to a president who keeps getting burned for telling the truth. jane s hoffman's new book it's called your data their billions unraveling and simplifying big tech you guys already know that when you click on a website uh multiple corporations in a nanosecond bid on whose ad your eyes will see seconds later but uh it actually goes much deeper than that as you already know privacy is something that really doesn't exist anymore and Um, Jane Hoffman herself says, these companies know your sexuality, your relationships, your meds, your health records, your salary, where you live, what you buy, what you watch and read, your religion. They even know your exact location and more. They have become the most powerful and richest companies in the world, largely making billions by selling your data and cashing in on your private information in the unregulated, free for all, wild west of our digital society. And that's why I think her book is so important. Not just because it could unite people on the left and the right who have mutual concerns, but also because she's not here just to talk about all the sins of these five Titans, but actually talk about how we as a people can fight back how we can possibly improve this situation and what the future could look like if we get engaged. It's a great pleasure to welcome Jane Hoffman. Thank you for joining us. I, I love the book. It's uh it's a great civic service you've performed with this book and I wanted to be terrified of it and I am terrified, but I'm in equal measure inspired by all the solutions you present, let's start with the beginning. Um, what inspired you to actually write your data, Their Billions?
0: Well, I have to say it was anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was I was nervous about big tech. So I, I thought, I'm at Harvard. I'm going to take a class on digital platforms. But before I take the class, let me see what I can learn just so I'm not behind the eight ball with these students. So I was looking around for a book that could really explain what's really happening when you turn on your computer or you turn on your phone and I couldn't find that book. So I thought in the back of my mind, maybe I'll create that book. Let me see how my research goes and and what I can uncover. And so that's how the book was born from anxiety, anxiety about big tech and anxiety about not knowing what our digital platforms are doing and how dependent we are on them in in a way if you think about a kid with a pacifier when you take away the pacifier they're in a panic and our phones are adult pacifiers think about it you you lose your phone all of a sudden you're going to totally freak out (laughs) because it's our pacifier
1: Oh, uh, yeah, boy. That, you know what? I'm sorry. I got to tweet that. Hang on one second. Uh, yeah. Um, but it's true. I mean, we are moths to the flame, except the flame in this case is a brightly lit screen. And, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a joke uh, I've said that where uh, I, I, I wrote to Facebook to share my concerns about lack of privacy. Uh, they wrote back and said they already knew how I felt about it. But it really <laughs> is true. I mean, young people growing up today probably don't even know what privacy means. How how limited has the notion of privacy become? I mean, it, 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 it's literally at a point now where if you want something to be private, you've got to say it to someone face-to-face.
0: Yeah, well, you raise a really interesting question. And I think the notion of privacy and its sociologic implications and its implications interpersonally have changed. Because if you talk to a 10-year-old about privacy or a 15-year-old, they're creating an in- an incredible visual history of their life. And it's a curation and it's only optimized and it's positive, it's not reality. And so their sense of privacy might be very different than yours or mine. When I think of privacy, I think of something that I don't wanna share. And what I'm afraid of is that privacy is becoming a luxury good. So yes. instead of buying some fancy pocketbook, you'll have to buy your privacy back. But I think there is a reason for hope. I think there's going to be a technological revolution and somebody's going to invent something for privacy. You know, when we rode around in horse and buggies, Everybody thought about how can we make the horses faster? Nobody thought of a car. And maybe that's where we are right now. We're about to invent something that will help protect our privacy. But for now, the notion of privacy has been obliterated. Everybody knows everything about you, except that everyone is big tech.
1: I mean, now we're at a phase where we have to have technological innovations to handle our previous technological innovations. And when you say privacy is becoming a luxury item, that's not just loose colloquial talk. I mean, if you have the money, you can actually pay for a virtual private network subscription, right? Is that how it works for those in the know?
0: Exactly. You can you can pay a monthly fee. And also maybe if you've spent money on it, you'd research how to protect your privacy. So maybe you want to use DuckDuckGo. I mean, I propose sort of an NPR of Google. I call it Google where nothing would Google. Yeah. And nothing would. What do you think of that?
1: I love it. I think it's great because it's like it's like a PBS, right? It's it's funded by the funded by the government, not for profit, not by uh, a tech company. And it's sort of like uh, a way to have an ad free search engine.
0: Right. So so now every bit of your data is bought and sold in nanoseconds all day long. But if we had an Google, an NPR of search, that wouldn't happen and you'd have privacy. And also it might help you with what some philosophers call the filter bubble and a filter bubble is you only see what reinforces your extreme beliefs. And the more extreme, the more engaged you get. And then the longer your eyeballs are on that site. So exactly. this filter bubble is super dangerous for all of us. So if you love watching Fox, watch CNN. If you love watching CNN, watch Fox. So change your media diet up a little so you're not in a filter bubble.
1: I was going to say, yeah, when I want to get affirmation that doesn't challenge my pre-existing beliefs, I'll go to cable news. Um, but it is it is <laughs> terrifying because all of these, I mean, Google, Bing, they, they, they always, always, the algorithm is designed to store and sell your private information. So every time you search anything on one of these search items, someone else is storing that away to eventually make a fraction of a penny off you.
0: Right. And they have about 2000 bits of data on you. Can you even think of what 2000 bits of data would be? I mean, that's an enormous amount of information, but say you're a novelist and you're researching how to murder someone for your novel about murder the internet and big tech thinks you're a murderer. So it does exactly. make mistakes. The algorithm does make mistakes because sometimes you're searching something for research, not because you want to actually kill somebody. You want to write about how to kill somebody.
1: That is how Pete Townsend got busted because he was a childhood abuse survivor and was writing about it and try, researching things. And they came at Pete Townsend and accused him of child pornography. Uh, they are watching. And when we talk about the big five I want to get this out of the way first the big five are tell me if I'm wrong here uh, Microsoft uh, Google or Alphabet um, Apple of course Amazon and Facebook I should say meta they keep changing names right Those, those are the big five
0: Right. Those are the big five. What's interesting about Meta changing its name, I think it's Mark Zuckerberg is so genius to do this, because if you have a problem with Facebook, call the CEO of Facebook. I'm the CEO of Meta now, and exactly. it really shirks responsibility. He doesn't have the same ownership. And this rebranding, I think the public is going to be a little too smart for the rebranding, but he's trying to create what's called the metaverse So we would only communicate with one another in the metaverse. Well, what does that mean for human relationships? How are, you know, what is intimacy if you're communicating in the metaverse and you're never actually with the person? What Mm -hmm. is love? What is a relationship? What is confidentiality? What is human understanding? If you live your life on a screen, what will that do to us?
1: And we just found out in the last week that Meta had been hiring consultants to do opposition research, like a politician smear job, on TikTok, because TikTok has become such a threat to both Facebook and uh, Instagram, that uh, they're trying to find ways to actively smear TikTok in the public marketplace. Are, Are these becoming the modern robber barons?
0: I think it's even bigger than robber barons, because I think they're practically nation states. They could be standalone nations. You know, these are trillion dollar companies, that's 12 zeros. I mean, the enormity of their breadth, scope and power is unparalleled. I don't think we've seen anything like this in our lifetime. And I know we look to history to learn from it, but I think this is kind of unprecedented.
1: Now, I do want to say we we love these companies to different degrees. I mean, Facebook allows a lot of people to keep in touch with their loved ones or those folks they knew in high school who are now racist. Uh, You know, Google makes our life easier. Amazon has changed the way we shop and market. So uh, not looking to smear these companies or the services they provide, but I I guess the million-dollar question is, what does everyone who sits down at a laptop or picks up a phone, what does everyone need to know about their motives and about how they accumulate profit
0: that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question i'm so glad you asked that you need to know that you are what makes money for them your data makes their billions so if you use these products and they've made our lives so much easier right i love buying my paper towels on amazon i don't have to go to the grocery store Point, click, buy. I mean, it, it, it's called frictionless buying and they make it so easy. And I, I don't want to take that away. And on, honestly, if you're in an ambulance, you're an EMT and you can get somebody's health records and save their life, you know, you want open flow of data. But if you're an EMT yeah. and you're selling the health records to a tabloid, you don't want open flow of data. But what you should know is that it's time for you get to get a piece of the pie back. If it's your data and it's their billions, why don't we create a data dividend so that you get a monthly check for your data from big tech? Why don't we tax big tech? The G20 has said they want to do a 15% tax on big tech. Why doesn't that money, instead of going to the Treasury Department, go back to US citizens Maybe we could follow the COVID protocol, so you get a COVID relief check if you earn under $198,000 a year. But if we got a data dividend monthly for what we earned, maybe it's a way to address social inequality. Maybe it's a way to put money back in consumers' pockets.
1: How would that work? I mean, I, I understand You know, we'd, we'd have to have a new system where we'd opt in and allow our personal information to be shared buy these companies for a profit, but how would the data dividend work? How would the average consumer or user actually see themselves getting a check from all of this?
0: Well, I think we'd have to set up what I call the Technology Fairness Commission, because typically the regulators have not kept pace with the innovators. They're about seven to nine years behind. So we need to have a Technology Fairness Commission filled with technologists so that they understand the technology And create a system so that you can get rebates so that if you file, I mean, is it uh, a burden, administrative burden? It might be, but maybe it's a way to redistribute income. Maybe it's a way to put money back in your pocket that is fair.
1: It's one of many great ideas in your book, which, again, is Your Data, Their Billions. If you're joining us, we're talking with Jane S. Hoffman, former commissioner of consumer affairs for New York City. Uh, and I'm curious about that. I mean, as someone who has worked with consumer affairs, why is it so hard to regulate these big five companies? Why is it so hard to protect people? Is it just that they've got their lobbyists and politicians need donations?
0: Well, the regulation that's going on is in Europe they established something called GDPR, which is the Data Protection Act. And they just came out with a new iteration of data privacy. And the reason it's happening in Europe and not in the U.S., because typically the U.S. is ahead on regulation. We are behind Europe because those companies are are in the U.S. They have powerful lobbyists. They line the pockets of politicians. And so we are behind the regulation eight ball, but I have I, I think a real clear message is is sounding, and I think people want regulation. I, you know, I know we're at a gridlock in Washington, but this might be something people can agree on: regulation of big tech. I'm not sure what yep. form it'll take and what it'll mean for the end user, but what's happened is that David has become the Goliath and we've eliminated competition. So what can we do to create an environment and an economy where these new companies can grow? They don't get gobbled up by the big guys.
1: Well, I think that's why your book is so important because it actually lays out how they do it, how they collect private data from online shoppers. And I think one of the most important steps is just letting people be educated that privacy has become a luxury item. I mean, what are some of the routine practices that most everyday users who sit down to their laptops aren't aware of when it comes to the collection of their private data?
0: So um, you might not be aware, but every time you click on something, you're creating a trail so that someone can find you. So I think you need to click wisely, and especially now, because right now I would guess Russia has a lot of eyes and its best minds on attacking us. And in terms of cyber warfare and our grid, which has many points of entry. So whatever you click on right now, I'd be really cautious what you click on. And I'd also really want to inform the seniors that I know, friends and family, because they might not be as computer savvy as you are and not know not to click on something. There was a scam recently that you got a text from Verizon, so-called Verizon that said, and it knew your phone number. And if you clicked into that, you installed malware in your whole system, you lost everything. So when I say you lost everything, they may have access to whatever accounts you had. And when I say losing everything, you lose your data. You might not lose your bank accounts, but you'd lose your data. So you have to be really sophisticated in terms of what you click on. You always have to update whatever you have, laptop or phone, because that's a vulnerability point And malware looks for vulnerability points. And in terms of passwords, you don't want a word that's in the dictionary because an algorithm can go through every single word in the dictionary. So you want lowercase c, number eight, z, y, l, f, something that's not a real word, which is much harder to demystify.
1: Algorithms know your parents' birthdays they know the names of your pets if you put these things in emails or on your Facebook account the algorithm knows and you also address how the algorithms manipulate what we buy can you can you just I guess elaborate on it because I think most of us understand that you know yeah you you corporations will bid to have you see a certain ad when you click on something. And we've all had the experience of Googling something. And then a few minutes later, seeing an ad for that thing when we go to Facebook. But how, how do they manipulate our buying choices?
0: Well, they're only showing you what they think you want to see. So based on the many bits of information you have, and probably at least 2000, say you want snow boots, you're going to get Even if you're in Hawaii and you're clicking on snow boots, you're going to get snow boots and you'll also get rain boots. It's so much smarter and it's anticipatory. So it knows if you were buying rain boots in a week, you might want a raincoat or an umbrella. So you might not be thinking of these items, but the algorithm knows they are often bought together. So the algorithm can take thousands of people's behavior and analyze. If most people buy this, then they're going to buy that. And so it anticipates what you want and you might not see something that's outside of the area of possibility because you've clicked on rain boots or you clicked on snow boots. So you're going to get exactly. everything accompanying that.
1: I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about misinformation or disinformation or what we used to call lies. You, you talk about this in the book. Um, it's one of the running questions we have on this show is how can a society crack down on the spread of blatantly dishonest information masquerading as news on social media platforms. I mean, while it's scary to think about the government having a Ministry of Truth, at the same time, we need some kind of civic watchdog, don't we?
0: Well, I love that. I think that's a super cool notion, Ministry of Truth. I really like that.
1: It sounds Um, creepy, but I mean, at at the same time, it sounds very Orwellian, but at the same time, we we sort of need something, like like there, some have suggested a green check mark to show verified news organizations. But at the same time, we all know we all have lots of loved ones who see lots of things on Facebook and they believe it's real. I mean, what can society do when the technology that makes lying so appealing and so convincing is evolving faster than the honesty?
0: I I don't think there's an answer to that societally. I I don't think if someone comes up with the answer to that, I think we'll all be in a better place. And that's the next trillion dollar company. But I think it starts with education. And and maybe we need to have civics education in grammar school so that kids are educated and develop a sniffer for what the truth is, because we're not really addressing that in our educational system. And I know our educational system has problems, but maybe we should be addressing the nature of truth, the nature of news, what's real, what's not, and how to verify things. You know how to how to look at the source and evaluate that maybe we need to help kids learn how to do that and i don't know how we do it for the older generations but i think for our future we might want to start in terms of educating our children
1: one of the things i love about the book and i i know our our time is short but it is full of solutions full of things we can do to let us take control of our own personal digital world and one of them you suggest is facebook free fridays How how can that help? How can how can taking a break one day a week actually make a difference?
0: Well, you know, there are things that are called social movements where everybody gets together and does the same thing. And you don't really see people coming together of disparate politics or disparate beliefs, except at sports games and in war. I agree. That's when most people come together. But maybe we could all come together and not be on Facebook on Friday and see what that feels like as a community. Maybe that will give us a sense of unification and maybe that sends a message to big tech, stop abusing our data. We're the users here and we want control.
1: And opt out of cookies, right? Opt out of the cookies? Opt out of
0: cookies, opt out (laughs) of cookies.
1: This has been such a pleasure. I've so been looking forward to speaking with you. Jane S. Hoffman is the author. The book is Your Data, Their Billions, Unraveling and Simplifying Big Tech, that rarest of books that is so political and yet unites both the left and the right because we are all, are all in this together in this scary new world. Thank you so much for joining us this evening.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824, Terms and Conditions Apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Andrew in Illinois, you've been on hold forever. Thank you for your patience. Hi.
2: Yes, hello there.
1: Hello. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I listen to your show as much as I can, and, you know, Dean Obigala and some of the others, and,
1: uh... Thank you.
2: It's like when uh, I don't watch Fox News, of course, because I've got a brain in my head. And I like facts with my news. And, you know, with this political system, I've now got skin in the game because a good friend of mine, he voted for Trump. And uh, I got a nephew that, you know, likes Trump. And it's kind of saddening when, you know, facts are facts. But when you played that Tucker Carlson clip, uh, apparently when he says, you know, why do we hate Putin so much? Yeah. And I remember hearing that several times, and you played it again a little while ago. And I, I remember thinking, well, why do we hate Vladimir Putin so much? Well, duh, the obvious answer, you know, he's killed a lot of people by ordering an invasion of a country. <laughs> So uh, which which, which one
1: do you mean? Because let's not forget what we've seen here so far. And I don't mean to trivialize this, but this is nothing compared to what he did to Chechnya, where he slaughtered 50,000 people and 14,000 Russian soldiers were killed. I mean, like he's done it before. Oh. He's been a war criminal. That's how he launched his career.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, but now you, Ukraine is in the news again uh, because of this. And, and we're get it, it's like the Vietnam era. I know I was a little kid back then, but when you look at the history, it's like now you've got these horrific images, and it's it's like Vladimir Putin, why do we hate him so much? You know, does he eat dogs? It's, and the list that he ran through was kind of stupid. So I thought...
1: No, it wasn't stupid. It was all race-baiting. It was all race-baiting. Oh, right. Eat dog, eat dogs is China. Did he unleash a virus deliberately to kill people? That's China. I mean, the, yeah. you know, it's like, go ahead and criticize China's government all you want. But I, I'm tired of people saying that China spent decades building the world's greatest economy so they could destroy it by killing their own people. It's ludicrous.
2: Exactly. But what I'm getting at is, take his list... You know, red meat to the base. And yep. why doesn't he turn around and say, why do we hate the 9-11 hijackers so much? You know, mm. and his—think about that. What would his base say then? Yep. You know? Well, his base,
1: would have, his base would have been introduced to critical thinking, and that can't happen.
2: Exactly. And I, I said that to my friend uh, not too long ago, and he's like, well, that's different. It's, it's not different at all. He, he yeah. ran through a list of why we hate Vladimir Putin so much. Well, switch it around. Why do we hate the 9-11 hijackers so much? You know, duh, the answer's pretty obvious, especially if, if you watch the news that's not being sanitized by the right.
1: To me, it's like, how can any conservative, how can any, cons- I, I get that you're authoritarian, but how can any conservative be brainwashed into supporting this guy who, who let's be serious, he's, he's not a capitalist. I mean Russia didn't go from communism to capitalism. It went under Yeltsin from communism and then Yeltsin turned it over to Putin and it became capitalism on tainted meth because they it's been Putin and his oligarchs making themselves billionaires and driving the entire economy of Russia into a ditch. Think about those oligarchs and how many billions they've amassed while the average Russian still only makes 10,000 US dollars a year. Think about how he's poisoned anyone who who disputes him. Think about how he's actually murdered journalists. It's like, how can you call your... And and by the way, Putin. Putin's just like our right-wingers because he pretends to be Christian. He has his own religious officials who back up what he's saying. Putin is not the atheist Soviet. Oh, no, he's a good Christian with the Russian Orthodox Church, which, by the way, has endorsed his murderous genocidal invasion of this country. I'll, I'll tell you, fake Christians stick together.
2: I mean, I actually got some emails from the Republicans with Donald Trump's name on them. Mm -hmm. And it only about for two weeks and then they stopped. And I can remember one time I subscribed digitally to the Washington post and I'm reading comments. This was even before the election. I'm reading comments on some of the articles that they posted, especially during the first impeachment. And believe it or not, here I am reading all these anti-Trump because the article was anti-Trump and yet what appeared just to the right of these comments and The Washington Post were ads for Donald Trump. Send money to the Republicans. You know what? You know. I
1: say go ahead. I say let him. I, I'm sorry. I'm in a minority on this, and I might be – I've been wrong before, and maybe I'm playing with fire by saying I don't think Donald Trump could be elected again, I, but I want to see him lose the popular vote a third time. I want yeah, to see you know this motherfucker say. with, with, I want to see him with a terrorist attack on our Capitol on his bloody hands try to run for president again. I don't know how he gets more votes than he got the last time.
2: But you see, that's just it. He'll, he'll announce to run. He'll get all this money coming in. And then if he actually does go through with it, get the nomination, and he'll just blanket the country with appearances and ads with all this millions he's getting. And, when he loses, thank God, hopefully he will, that he'll just scream what he's always screamed, fake news, exactly. they stole the election again, Exactly. And his ego hopefully will implode in his mind.
1: But he's such an embarrassment. He's coming out and doing the greatest hits like sticks at the state fair, and it's awkward and painful to watch. And by the way, Putin was always the evil genius, the effective one. I, I think Putin's luster, Putin's teflon image of being this incredibly lethally brilliant and effective authoritarian is done now that we've actually seen what's going on and when he committed genocide on chechnya everybody didn't have a video camera in their pocket now they do putin's right done putin will never be able to get back what he's lost from this and i'm here for it i want to see these and, guys fail and their acolytes go with them
2: yeah but that's just it now when uh with with his other atrocities now these sanctions are, are – they're, they're grabbing multi-million-dollar yachts, and it's like he spread the pain around, and, and that's yeah. brilliant.
1: Yeah, what, I think do you so think too. What would
2: happen if Trump will never – I think it was you who said Trump will never serve a day in jail. The worst thing you can do to him is make him irrelevant. I yeah. mean I love Stephen Colbert. He never mentions him by name, and I've got my cell phone full of all of these Trump nicknames. Starting nice. with the comb over Caligula, you know that's mine. Hitler.
1: Okay, comb you know? over Caligula is mine. I'm very proud of that one.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, well, somebody mentioned it, and I, I, I loved it, and I got this brand new cell phone, so I started a list, and not just Trump, but other people that were involved. I mean, at this point in his presidency, how many? How, what's he on? Is his third Secretary of State?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I have a lot of names for him because I also I mean, just if we have time, I, I, I do call him uh, a Captain Grift Weasel. I call him Darth Jabba. Uh, I call him a corrosive meat goblin, a truculent pus cluster, uh, Silvio Berlusconi ovary. I'm proud of that one. I've called him an infected yak polyp, a malignant yeast fungus, Putin's petulant prison punk. Uh, I call him a less moral, less honest, less healthy, less likable Nixon. Uh, I've called him an oversaturated knob, a mendacious orc stool, a noxious glob of congealed creamsicle-colored spray-tan goo, Kim Jong-oops, a money-laundering scrotal clot, the authoritarian Bulgarian orangutan barbarian, a maladapted scat ghoul, Fredo in a family of Fredos, an old fat King Joffrey Baratheon with untreated syphilis, Donnie the Hutt, <laughs> but it all comes down to comb over Caligula. It's a fun game. We can go weeks yeah, without saying yeah. his actual name.